A reading from the Revelation of St. John the Divine, the sixth chapter, beginning at the first verse. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? The word of the Lord. The second lesson, a reading from the Revelation of St. John the Divine, the seventh chapter, beginning at the ninth verse. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, and no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When we think of the exemplary saints from the Bible and from church history, St. Peter, St. Mary, St. Francis, and so on, they're remembered and renowned because of particular ways that their lives reflected Christ. But we must be careful to remember that they were not superheroes. Rather, they were humans just like you and me. The faith and virtue that characterized their lives was simply the fruit of God's grace at work in them which means that attaining such holiness remains a possibility for each one of us. So this morning, I want to consider what stands in our way with that. What stands in our way of attaining virtue, faith of greater holiness? Well, the sinful condition that we were all born with desires more than anything to avoid pain or discomfort, particularly to avoid it in our present, in the immediate. While it also, this sinfulness, keeps us blind to the future consequences of choices in our present. And it's this reality that makes us so susceptible to evil, which tempts us to seek out idols who can offer us protection from suffering. But one way God can bring good out of evil is when we respond to the pain or discomfort that these idols shield us from by instead turning to God, where we can find the grace to endure pain and discomfort for the sake of righteousness and where we can find be given the faith or vision for how the immediate threats of evil pale in comparison to the rewards of remaining faithful to him. You know, one of the things I've discovered 
about some of the biggest changes in life. So for me, those would include getting married, becoming pastor of a church, having kids. One thing I've discovered is that no matter what I've done to prepare for those changes, or what advice people may have given me in advance, which was usually given very liberally, I really had no idea what it was going to be like or what it was going to be all about until I was in it. I'm guessing many of you have had similar experiences with big changes in your life. I know for me, having kids has definitely been this way. I've learned how foolish and arrogant it was for me to stand in judgment of other parents of young children, particularly before I had done it myself. I can remember before having kids, I'd see someone out in public whose, whose kid was having a total meltdown, you know, maybe in Target, or the worst is on the plane, right? And judgmentally thinking like, man, can these people not control their kids? Now, of course, going into the parenting phase of my life, I was aware that babies cry a lot. And I'd heard rumors that kids can absolutely lose it over insignificant things, like the color of the cup that you give them, their milk in, hypothetically speaking. <laughs> but having not had a younger sibling myself, I don't think I really grasped how much babies cry or how often kids may be prone to having meltdowns. And what I discovered for myself about both crying and meltdowns is that I do not enjoy either of them. <laughs> so when they're happening, I find myself with the impulse to do whatever I can to just make it stop. Just make it stop. I just want quiet, right? which really, if you're honest, is to prioritize my own comfort over the needs of the kid, right? The problem with this approach, of course, is that I've learned since then that in order to raise emotionally healthy kids, their emotional experience needs to be respected. That it, as a father, I need to provide space for them to express different feelings that arise. Now, perhaps I don't need to provide that space in the middle of Target, but I need to provide space so they can learn, right? Certainly with fits and starts, so they can learn how to manage their emotional life in healthy ways instead of just shut down, right? Which is what my sinful self wants them to do in those moments. So what this means is it means patience. It requires patience for me demands patience and endurance of a whole lot of crying and a whole lot of meltdowns. And for various reasons, perhaps it's my temperament or probably my background, to be honest, I can often find that to be pretty excruciating to be around. So what makes it challenging to always accept my kids as kids and to be the father that they need is that sinful condition that we're all born with and the way it manifests in me is it prefers more than anything, or the way it manifests in all of us, is it prefers more than anything our sin does 
to avoid pain or discomfort in our present, right? While kind of ignoring future consequences. And this is what makes me susceptible to trying to control my kids' emotional life by shutting them down when it's uncomfortable for me. Tempting me with that momentary relief of peace and quiet from discomfort in the moment without caring all that much about the future consequences. But one alternative, one way God can bring good out of the evil, the adversity we experience, is when we respond to the pain and discomfort by turning to him instead of our idols, in my case, the idol of peace and quiet. There we can find the grace to endure some suffering, some pain, some discomfort for the sake of righteousness and be given the faith, the vision for how these immediate challenges, the discomfort of them pale in comparison to the rewards of remaining faithful to him. And believe it or not, this, what I'm talking about, is the truth underlying our readings from Revelation this morning. It may take me a moment to get there. But our reading from Revelation 7 is what was appointed today, our second reading. It was appointed for All Saints Day. It makes sense too, right? It describes the great multitude of God's saints gathered from every tribe and nation and people, standing in praise before God's throne. But y'all know me. I mean, I read this and I, I thought, man, this really should not be divorced from what St. John describes in Revelation chapter 6. It's all part of the same, same vision. And if you just look at the chapter 7 part, it's kind of like only getting the good news without getting some other reality. Okay, So I had us read Revelation 6 first. Now, as I reminded us last week, the Revelation was a book of visions written by St. John and sent to a group of seven churches in the Roman Empire, likely around 95 A.D., sent in an era when believers, Christians, were facing enormous pressure to compromise their faith and to live according to Roman values instead of Christian values. Remember, Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire at that time. In fact, in recent decades, leading up to the, the writing of Revelation, certain emperors had felt particularly threatened by the faith and persecuted Christians mercilessly. For example, Nero, who was emperor from 54 to 68 AD, he brutally murdered Christians in Rome by crucifying some of them, by having others torn apart by dogs, by having still others beaten to death. And while it's unclear if Revelation was written at a specific year under an emperor who was using violence on Christians, the imagery of chapter 6 uses Revelation's characteristic, you know, symbolic imagery to highlight not just the threat of martyrdom, but some additional reasons that Christians were tempted in those days to compromise their allegiance to Jesus and his hidden kingdom of God and to trust instead in the promises and security the empire offered. This passage, chapter 6, describes a total of six seals being opened to each reveal a separate part of the vision. And the first four seals each reveal a rider on a horse, which have famously come to be known as the four horsemen. I bet most of you have heard that phrase before, the four horsemen. This is where it's from. And to aid in my explanation of this, 
I've included a colored version of the woodcut of this scene, the first eight verses of chapter six, in your insert. I hope it's helpful if you're a visual person. Um, if you'd like to turn to it, you're welcome to. This is done in the 15th century by an artist named Albert Durer. But scholar Craig Coaster, he explains that these four horsemen represented what people felt were the primary existential threats, threats to their physical well-being in those days. The first rider, who is pictured in the very back on the far right, he rides on a white horse. And in verse 2, John describes him as riding out, quote, as a conqueror bent on conquest. Well, this horseman represents the threat of conquest, the very real threat of conquest from foreigners, right, from outside the Roman Empire, who could attack the Roman Empire and therefore put everyone who lived within that empire at risk. The second rider is on a fiery red horse, we're told, pictured right in front of that first one. In verse 4, John says, He was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. And he had a sword in his hand, as you can see. This horseman, the second one, represents the threat of experiencing violence from one's neighbors and fellow countrymen. So the first one's about you know, threats from outside, foreign conquest. The second one is about threats from you know, the guy next door you know, wanting to come knock your head off type of thing. In front of these first two is the third rider on a black horse whom verse 5 says was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And you can see in, this, in the picture, he's kind of holding them there yellow. They're kind of way out back as he rides very quickly. This horseman represents the threat of economic hardship. As the words of verse 6 proclaim, prices for staples, wheat and barley, that were high enough to use up most of the wage of a small family, with none left over at all for oil and wine. So this third rider represents not being able to make ends meet, not being able to eat, right? Famine even. But finally, the fourth rider, says John in verse 8, he rides on a pale horse, or some translations say an ashen horse. This is pictured on the bottom left of the woodcut. His name was Death, with Hades, the scripture says, which is the place of the dead, following close behind him. You can see Hades is kind of this yellow-colored monster eating, eating somebody up there in the very bottom corner, bottom left corner. So this fourth horseman represents, and his companion, Hades, represents the ultimate threat underlying each of the previous three, right? The ultimate threat underlying whether it's foreign conquest or violence within the empire or, you know, not being able to eat is that you die of it, right? But also, as I mentioned, under some of the recent Roman emperors, death had been a major threat to the survival of Christians in particular who were unwilling to be more loyal to the empire than they were to Christ. I'll get to that just a little more in a minute. But first, I want to point out to you that 
that all four of these horsemen, if you look at the scripture we read, those first eight verses, all four of these horsemen are actually called forth from the throne of God, right? They're not like called forth by Satan or coming out of hell or anything. They're called forth from the throne of God. In verses 1, 3, 5, and 7, each of the four living creatures described as being around God's throne in this symbolic imagery, they're the ones who call forth each of these horsemen. And this highlights the reality, the perhaps uncomfortable reality, that God allows a world where there is evil that threatens our well-being as humans and threatens our survival. And yet because our sinful condition wants to avoid pain, of course death more than anything, these threats make us susceptible to seeking out other evil, seeking out idols who might offer relief or protection from that suffering. And that is precisely what made, what caused the first century Christians to be susceptible to shifting their allegiance from Christ to the empire of Rome. Just a little bit about that, you know. It, it just so happens that Caesar Augustus, the emperor when Jesus was born, ironically began a 150-year period of time of peace and prosperity in the Roman Empire, historians will tell you. This was known as the Pax Romana, Latin for peace of Rome, Roman peace. Of course, it's ironic that Caesar Augustus began this period of peace and prosperity. Ironic because in hindsight, because of that, he was called, his birth was called good news. He was popularly dubbed as the son of God, right? There was kind of this quasi-Roman emperors or kind of divine type of thing going on. He was called the cosmic savior, Caesar Augustus was. Ironic because these are titles that we would reserve for who? For Christ. This peace that the empire purported to offer, though, it included protection for its citizens from what? From the things these horsemen represent, right? From foreign conquest, right? The strong Roman army will, keep, will protect you from that. It had laws and a justice system meant to restrain violence among its citizens, right? Keep your neighbor from taking your head off, right? Rome promised a prosperous economy to shield against financial hardship. And for those willing to be loyal to the emperor over Jesus, Rome promised not to martyr you, you know, not to put you to death. So what I want you to see is kind of this choice before Christians, right? Throughout the ministry of Christ in the first hundred years of the church, there's this peace and salvation promised through Christ, of course, the spiritual peace and salvation that was set in contrast to this much more tangible peace of Rome, particularly under those emperors who demanded that Christians forsake Christ to be, proclaim allegiance to them. But as much as the Roman Empire offered, it would seem, as much as it offered, this vision of the four horsemen shows just how limited the offer really was compared to the Lord. 
Because as much as the empire deigned to offer protection from conquest and violence and famine, if, if everybody was honest, their ability to stave these off was limited. It depended on the stability of the empire, first of all. Right? And while Rome's protections might be able to lengthen a person's life, ultimately, death comes for everybody, that fourth horseman, right? So, of course, this Rome offered kind of half promises on all these counts. So the temptation offered to Christians by the idol of empire, by trusting more than anything in empire, was to avoid some suffering in the near term and perhaps even enjoy, enjoy some worldly prosperity. But John, St. John's warning to those Christians willing to forsake the good news of Jesus for the supposed good news of empire was that the protection Rome promised from physical harm paled in comparison to the greater promises of Christ, to the bigger picture benefits of remaining in Christ. That's what the fifth and sixth seals are meant to show. Unfortunately, I haven't included a, an image of, of the fifth and sixth seals, though there's, there's a woodcut that exists. But these verses remind the reader that no, that no matter what they do, accountability and justice will come for their decision. When Jesus opens the fifth seal, it reveals the souls of all the saints who'd already been martyred, right? Been martyred because of their faithfulness to God. And in verse 10, they call out to the Lord for justice. But instead of given, being given justice yet, they're given white robes and are told they need to wait a little bit longer until the full number of those who will die in the Lord are, are gathered. What they have to wait for, of course for justice is the final judgment, right? And that's what's depicted in the sixth seal, the final seal of this chapter. Verse 12 says, I watched as Jesus the Lamb opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tray when shaken. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, they hid out of terror, right? They called out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. We'd rather that you rocks and mountains kill us than face him who sits on the throne, who we did not make our Lord, right? So this last image of judgment says that you know, in response to that great day of wrath, all the kings and princes and, and generals and rich and mighty, they're, they're attempting to hide and they proclaim, who can withstand this? Who can withstand God's judgment? And yet the answer as to who can withstand God's judgment comes in the next chapter. Our second reading today, which depicts a great multitude, a number of people no one could count who were given white robes, standing around the throne of God, verse 15 says, and holding palms of victory in their hands, showing that every bit of suffering they endured in this life for righteousness sake, for holiness sake, every bit of it, every bit of pain had been worth it as they find rest and reward in heaven. 
Now, that's a lot. I know it's a lot to take in. <laughs> His uh, Revelation's imagery is like nothing else, right? But what I want you to understand is that it would have been clear to anyone in the churches these visions were written to that they couldn't remain neutral, right? They needed to choose that day, choose this day, whom they would entrust their lives to, Jesus or Caesar, right? They need to choose what way of living they would, they would have. They would have for themselves the ways of the kingdom of God or the ways of the kingdoms of this world. And, and what would determine how they would choose, though? What do you think would determine how they would choose? What I want to suggest to you is what would determine it is whether they had a character that hungered for righteousness and faithfulness more than they hungered for avoiding pain and discomfort. A character that hungered for righteousness and faithfulness more than avoiding pain and suffering. And whether they had the faith to believe that their present troubles that they might endure for being faithful, for being holy, for being righteous, paled in comparison to the future rewards of remaining faithful. So to bring this though to us, Certainly, trusting in worldly kingdoms and worldly power is a temptation that we all remain susceptible to as well, right? It's as powerful temptation as it ever was, even in the first century. In fact, I think you'll agree that the idols of American culture and empire offer much the same protections from threats of survival and perks of this life prosperity that those Roman ones did. I mean, there's really not much difference than what our empire offers us and our culture apart from Christ offers us. You may wonder, well, what's the big deal? Can't I remain neutral, right? Well, here's the problem. Whenever our trust in military might or in a prosperous global economy, or in first world healthcare, whenever that exceeds our trust and allegiance to Christ, then whenever those worldly idols are shaken by 21st century horsemen, let's say, of economic recessions and inflation, of political division and instability, of a pandemic, Whenever those, if our trust is in those things of the world more than Christ, then whenever they're shaken, it's going to shake us to the core. And reflecting the love of Christ to our world is going to be the furthest thing from our hearts. It's going to be every man and woman for himself if our, heart, if our hearts trust in the idols. Right? It makes a big difference in how we respond to these threats. The sinful condition we were all born with desires more than anything to avoid pain or discomfort in our present while keeping us blind to the future consequences of those choices. That's what makes us susceptible to evil, to bad choices, because we seek out idols who promise somewhat emptily, somewhat maybe for short term to protect us from that pain and discomfort. But the, cho the alternative we have that God offers, the way he can bring good out of the presence of evil that we live in, 
is when we respond to the pain of discomfort by turning to him instead. And where we can find the grace to endure pain and discomfort for the sake of holiness, the sake of righteousness, being faithful to him. Where we can be given the vision for why enduring some pain now is worth every bit of it for the rewards that will come. Having said all this though, it's not only threats to our physical survival that undermine our trust in Jesus, our faithfulness to him. Right? It just back, back in that first century, it wasn't just the empire, the government, it was the culture, the worldly culture. And the same is true for us. Living in a society like ours, as we talked about last week, has, has denied or minimized the reality of evil. What it's done is it's probably given all of us an expectation that's unrealistic. And that is the expectation that we won't suffer in life, or that we won't suffer much, or that we don't have to suffer, right? That's kind of the message that's been that's sent to us from society probably since we came out of the womb, right? This is the collective lie we've inherited, right? that we won't suffer and that we shouldn't have to suffer. Right? And what it does is it causes us to cling to the idols in our lives that protect and shield us from suffering all the more. And it hinders us from wanting to, even, to cast down those idols for Christ's sake. Why? Because casting down idols is painful. Right? As I said in the sermon on idols a few months ago, that whatever idols we've made, whether it's of money or sex or empire or food or work or health or marriage or family or kids or politics, the deeper purpose those idols serve for us right, is to shield us from pain and discomfort. We said that those idols, they, they either operate, they give us power or approval or comfort or control. And, but all that ultimately is about avoiding pain and discomfort. Right? Keeping control over my situation is about things being the way I want them to be and not ways that I'm uncomfortable with, for example. So for us to let go of any of those idols, that means that frankly, letting in pain that that idol has shielded us from for, in some cases, a long time. Right? Our sinful condition does not want to do that. Forget it, right? And so it can't even imagine what it would be like to give that idol up. Right? For example, putting in healthier boundaries in our lives with our loved ones, those closer to us, or we have toxicity in relationships. Well, in order to do that, to put in boundaries, we have to be willing to risk the pain and blowback that comes from it. The loss of love from that person if they respond poorly to that boundary. Right? So that is an example of how seeking righteousness and holiness you know, is, to, is to court pain and discomfort even if it's worth every minute of it. But that's why our sinful condition has very little interest, right? Wants to run the other direction. Just keep things the way they are, right? Even if they're dysfunctional. All these things require a willingness to grieve, but many of us are terrified of grief. To be honest, in my own life, I've just be begun to learn the past few years how to grieve. I'm just, 
I'm a baby in it, right? Because the society I lived in, the church I grew up in, the family I grew up in, we don't grieve. We stuff it. We, we handle in dysfunctional ways. Or wait, we're American. We're not supposed to suffer, right? Believe that lie. When we seek to make a change to honor God with our time or talents or treasures, this is probably going to require that we grieve the worldly pleasure that we have to give up to do that with. As Peter Scazzaro said, we can't be spiritually mature, though, without being emotionally mature. We cannot grow spiritually and remain emotionally immature. In order for us to ever emotionally mature, what do we have to do? We have to be willing to experience the pain of reality. Right? Emotional maturity is about be- having the tools to handle reality as difficult as it can be and not, fl- not escape from it. Right? But all that that we can attain, all the holiness we can attain, every way our character and faith can become more like Christ will be worth every bit of short-term pain and discomfort it may entail. And it won't just be worth it for us, it'll be more worth it for those whom we love our spouse, our kids, our parent, whatever. But the more our faith matures, the less we'll find ourselves trusting in the worldly means of security through empire and wealth and violence. And the more willing we'll be to endure pain for holiness, righteousness sake. In living in a society where Christianity is not currently illegal, but is about maximum pleasure and and no pain, these are our opportunities for martyrdom, right? We may not risk being put to death for Jesus' sake, but are we willing to endure pain for him to make us more like himself? That's the question for us in the 21st century in America. The sinful condition we're all born into desires to avoid pain and discomfort in our present and ignore future consequences, which makes us susceptible to evil. But God can bring good out of the evil we live among when we respond to to pain and discomfort by turning to him instead. There we can find the grace to endure pain and suffering for the sake of righteousness and be given the faith to see how the immediate threats of pain and discomfort pale in comparison to the rewards of remaining faithful, the rewards of holiness. And so before I close, I want to just say that, you know, for me personally, the big challenge continues to be discerning where I'm doing this, right? I know I mentioned at the outset discerning my tendency to idolize peace and quiet at the expense of my kids' well-being. Y'all are going to be watching me now, aren't you? (laughs) But what are the other ways? What are the other patterns and instances where I seek out idols to shield me from pain and discomfort? And what sort of harm is it causing me or others? What sort of blessings am I missing out on because of my failure to be holy, to endure suffering for righteousness sake? Some of you may be in a similar place where you just need God to show it to you. 
So in a few moments, I want to lead us in asking God to reveal these toxic idols to us or, or to ask his help to, to choose differently when we're tempted to use them to shield ourselves from pain. And after that, we'll ask God in song to help us with all of this and, of course, have the opportunity to confess any idols he may have revealed. But first, let's pray. Lord, our spirit is willing, desires holiness, but our sinful flesh is weak. We can have so little courage for the pain or discomfort that attaining that holiness can require. But will you show us ways, the patterns and instances in our lives where we seek out idols to shield us from pain and discomfort? Will you give us vision for the benefits of living differently? If we did live differently in you, the benefits to us and to those whom we love that we're presently missing out on. And will you give us the willingness the next time we're tempted to escape in that way, to begin choosing differently, to seek the help of your Holy Spirit? But before that moment even comes, to be vulnerable with a fellow believer who can help us be honest about that stronghold. To seek godly counsel for new and healthier ways to live in a world where because of evil's existence, suffering is inevitable. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.